morning, everyone. Good to see you on this chilly morning. My name's Jose. If you are visiting, I want to welcome you, especially we uh, Cypress Creek Church are a group of imperfect people, and we're all on a journey to follow the only perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us and uh, listen to God's Word. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 8 in just a second. We are in this series called Unashamed, where Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God at work in those who believe in Jesus. And we've been working our way through the book, and y'all, chapter 8 is a heavy hitter. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus is in us, uh, for God works all things for good for those that have been called according to his purpose, and we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from God. We're going to dive into those verses. We're going to go through a lot. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, and dive in, but first let me set up what we're talking about, because this chapter talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 19 times. I titled this message, Christ in Me, and what I want to get across is that this chapter teaches us what that really means, Christ in us, that Christ came to dwell in us through his Holy Spirit. Jesus came to live a perfect life so that he can be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He uh, was crucified. He was in a tomb for three days, and then he ascended into heaven after he resurrected from the dead. That's what we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. And then his Holy Spirit descended to live in us. And, and as I started reading this chapter, I realized that there is a problem in us, and that is that we don't often look at the Holy Spirit that's been given to us for our self-worth, for wisdom, for direction. Instead, we live distracted. Joel hit on some things that he had no idea but are already in the message. We live distracted by all of the things out there versus focusing in who lives in here, especially right here. Anybody with me? These devices that are incredibly helpful and can also be a cruel master. Uh, I read a stat uh, talking about the usage of our phone. Pre-COVID, uh, we spent about six or so hours on our phone on a daily basis. If you're just an average person, for some of us, that may be more. Some of us, I know that's less, but just go with me, okay? Uh, over, over six hours. Now, Post-COVID, that has gone up 60 to 80%. It is tied. Our, our usage on our phones is tied to a higher rate of anxiety and, and depression. Uh, sleep rates have gone down. And it's no uh, question that when we look at all the stuff, all the information, all the content that is out there, it distracts us from the powerful gospel, if you're in Christ, that lives in here. Now, uh, personally, I want to give you my stats because there's a thing called screen time. If you have, if you have uh, an Apple iPhone, uh, Android, you got to ask somebody else because I don't know what you got. But iPhones came out with this thing, hoping to kind of convince us, look, you're spending a lot of time on your phone, spend, spend a little less time. And again, that has only gone up. But if you look at this program that is already downloaded on your 
iPhone called screen time. You can see how much time you spend a day. You don't have to wonder or time yourself. You, so uh, this last week, I spent five hours on, on my phone. Here's the part that really got me, though. I picked it up 139 times a day. That, that's the part that convicted me. Man, I'm picking my phone up. And that's for to answering messages and not really phone calls. Mostly communicate through, through messages. Uh, news is a big one. ESPN, I was looking at March Madness results a lot this, this last week. Um, we, we geocached at Pedernales Falls with my kids, so I was opening up that app. Bottom line, uh, we picked this thing up way more. Here is just something free that I thought about, a challenge for us before we get into these four points and even in Romans 8. What would it look like to pick up our Bibles before we pick up our phones every single morning? What would it look like to depend on God's Word, on God's Holy Spirit, more than we do on this. Y'all, the people living in Rome did not have this. They were truly receiving the word of God fresh and in awe with expectation. They didn't have Bibles on their phones or on their bookshelves. They had these letters that were being read out loud in the assembly like what we're experiencing now. What, what would it look like for us to do that, to focus on Christ in us versus all that is out there. So let's open up to Romans chapter 8 and read these four things that that means, Christ in me, as we open up God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gather together to open up your word. I pray that it would speak to all of us individually, that by your Holy Spirit, we would be convicted, uh, that we would be comforted, that we would uh, be more aware of what you are doing in us and through us. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible chapter in Jesus' name. Amen. Four things that Christ in me means. The first one is that we are condemned no more. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Think about the last or the worst thing that you have thought, said, or did the last 24 hours. Worst thing that you have thought, said, not, not allowed. You don't need to tell me or your neighbor. Just, just think about that. Worst thing that you thought, said, or did. The worst thing that you thought, said, or did in the last week? Maybe last year? And let me just read this verse again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Condemnation is the opposite of this word justification that we've been reading. Justification means that we've been declared not guilty. Condemnation is the opposite. We're declared guilty. We're guilty as charged and therefore deserve punishment. The gospel of Jesus Christ living in me means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody out there? Anybody out there think that's good news for them? It's good news for me. Let's keep reading. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. We talked about this last week, that the law, we've been released by the law, and the law uh, led us to death, but the Spirit leads us to life. God did by sending his own 
own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, meaning that Jesus did not sin, and yet he paid the price that we in our sin deserved. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Normally, I extend an invitation to be in Christ at the end of the message, but there's no better time than now. If, if you're, if, 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 as I told you earlier, if, if you feel that guilt and that shame, this series is called Unashamed because when we are in Christ, we are no longer ashamed of our past, of the things that we have done. And Jesus is inviting us into what he's already done for us on the cross. If you are here and you are not yet in Christ, you're not following Jesus, you haven't said yes to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, I wonder if you are thinking about all of these unexplainable moments in your life that you're wondering about. Is that God? Let me just explain those unexplainable moments. That's God. John 6, says that the Father draws us to himself, that he woos us into relationship. He pursues us while we were still sinners, as we read a couple of verses, chapters ago. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus, to invite his Holy Spirit in you, to empower you to live out the life that he has designed for you. What does it mean to be in Christ, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Let's keep on reading, uh, because now what do we do? Do we just live the way that we want to? No, no, no. It means that we have a different world view. There's two worldviews that Paul will be writing here. There is the worldview of the flesh and the worldview of the spirit. In verse five, he says, those who live according to the flesh, that's our sinful nature, have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance to with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. So now that we are in Christ, verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind is governed, mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's our past. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are, are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. So because we are no longer condemned, we now in Christ need to condemn sin in our life. We can't go on living like we used to. We have to put uh, sin to death. In uh, the movie, Batman Begins, Batman says this, it is not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. Uh, not so fast, Batman. It's actually the opposite. Who you are inside defines, dictates what you do. Now that we are in Christ, we're no longer condemned. Now we have the power to live by the Spirit in Christ. Uh, 
again, we didn't plan this before, but Joel talked about Colossians chapter three, and he said that we need to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Well, I created this graph. I'm not going to read it, but you can look at it on your own. Colossians 3 talks about the difference between living in the flesh or living according to earthly things and living according to the spirit. Here's the two worldviews. Earthly mindset leads to sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lies. Quite a list. Here is what the spirit mindset looks like. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, love, peace, word dwells within us, and gratitude. These are verbatim taken out from Colossians 3. I wonder, and here's my first question for us. What do I need to condemn in my life? Let's go back to that list, if we can, please. Look at that earthly mindset. Which one of you, which one of those resonates in you? Which one of those do we need to condemn? Do we need to put to death and say, nope, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation. That no longer defines who I am. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, and uh, this is only the first point, but here we go. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die again. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. That unites us to God. It, it brings us into proximity, which leads to our second point of what it means to be in Christ, and that is that we are chosen and adopted into God's family. Verse 14, Paul writes, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. <laughs> Same thing here. We're all included. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if you're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. We are chosen and adopted. Being adopted means that there is a permanency to that adoption, and, and there's also uh, capacity. Permanency, he chose you. It's over. We have been called later on in uh, verse 29. We won't read these verses, but it says that we, God foreknew us, God predestined us, God called us, justified, and glorified us. It's God's work in us. He chose us four years ago when we celebrated our son's adoption. I mean, just chills all over hearing the words of the judge declaring that he, he now is our son. It is our duty to raise him for the rest of his life. We have his rights now. He is my son. I am his dad. So beautiful in a picture, again, of God's election in our lives. If we are in Christ, it means that we are chosen by God 
permanently. And the second thing is that there is a great capacity to that. Now, I wish that I could have celebrated that adoption ceremony over and over. So awesome. But the truth is, my family, we have a capacity issue. We can't just keep on adopting. Again, I wish that we did, but God doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have a capacity problem. He is willing and able to perform the duty of dad to all of us. And what's so beautiful, it says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This word Abba, Father, is the Greek informal dad in their language. It would have communicated to them. And what's beautiful is that's the same word that Jesus used when he talked about his father. Every time he used the word father is this Greek word, Abba. And in Luke 8, Jesus is told that his mothers and his mother and brothers are, are there to see him. Luke 8, 8, 19 through 21 says, then Jesus's mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd, which was normal when Jesus was performing miracles and teaching. Verse 20, someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. So we are in God's family if we are in Christ. If we're no longer condemned by sin, we're condemning sin in our life. We are chosen and adopted his children. What a beautiful picture of intimacy that is to be a part of God's family. It also speaks to our identity in our world. If we find our identity in uh, those things that other people say in us, we'll, we'll, we'll end up disappointed and, and discouraged. If, if we uh, tie our identity to our social media accounts and the amount of followers and likes, there's only one end result, and that is disappointment. Nothing can fill the void of being called a son and a daughter of the Lord most high. Am I living in order to belong or because I belong? There's a world of a difference here. If, if I truly believe that I'm a chosen and adopted son of God, then I'm going to live because I have a place of belonging. And that's what Jesus came to, to bring us, a sense of belonging into his family, a sense of belonging here in our local expression of uh, Cypress Creek Church, a sense of belonging to this church family, which is a small picture of the greater picture of the family of God. So what does Christ in me mean? It means that we are no, are condemned no more, that we've been chosen and adopted into God's family. And the third, that we compare our present sufferings with the future glory. We got to compare both. That's what verse 18 Paul is writing, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The church in Rome was experiencing a lot of persecution. In fact, the Jews, the Jewish part, had just returned after being exiled from Rome. And, and so in the point before, the Gentile believers are saying, hey, we're all a part of God's family. That's awesome. And now uh, Paul is saying, hey, these trials, these persecutions that you are experiencing right now are temporary. Fix your eyes on the eternal, on, on the future glory. Verse 19, it says, for the creation waits in eager expectations for the children of God to be 
revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This goes back to Genesis chapter 3. The land was also cursed. Adam and Eve were cursed for disobedience, but the land was also cursed. And so when we see all the brokenness in the land, the storms and all the crazy stuff that happens this side of heaven, we know that the future glory will be that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that there will be no more destruction, that the land will cultivate fruit, that the rocky hill country will be able to sprout all sorts of good fruit, uh, as hard as it may be right now. The land has been subjected to our own sin, humanity's sin, but Verse 22 and on, there's, we see three groanings. We see the creation is growing. We see that we are groaning, and there's also an inward groaning in our spirit. Let's read it in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our body. So this speaks to the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has already come, and it is also yet to come. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom by his resurrection. He's given us his Holy Spirit, and now we're in tension until Jesus comes back a second time and restores all things back to the state as it was in the garden. Uh, For in this hope we were saved, but the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patient, patiently. Man, so uh, when we look at our circumstances right now in life, I wonder, are, are, are we saying that that is final, that, that our current trials, that our current suffering, that our current hardships will determine the future glory, or are our eyes fixed on Jesus and the future glory that we've all been promised, and is that dictating our current circumstances? Verse 26 speaks to the Spirit that helps us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know, verse 28, we all know this, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. That scripture in context makes all the difference, doesn't it? That we're, we're talking about trials. Sometimes we, 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 we come to a trial and we say, hey, don't, don't worry about that. God works all things for good. Don't worry about that. Here's the thing is, is we know long term that, that God will work things for good. Here's the other thing, though. That may be in our lifetime, <laughs> or three generations down the line. We don't know, but we can trust that God ultimately works all things for good. The key word here, I believe, is patience, hope. We, we patiently wait with hope. Question for us, what current circumstance can I entrust to God 
right now? What current circumstance, what current trial, what current problem can I release, surrender to God, believing that he will work all things for good on his timeline, not mine? Finally, Christ in me means that we confront trials with confidence. Now, This is a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of good stuff. It's a heavy hitter chapter. Verse 31, chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? I feel like Paul is taking a deep breath here. What, what, What more can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't things that are going to come against us. It means that those things that come against us will not overcome us. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. He's recapping Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's what gives us confidence, that we are more than conquerors. The greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, that if God is for us, who can be against us? What does it look like to confront those trials? Here's uh, the, how the chapter closes, and then I'll close with, with the question. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe that there is nothing that can separate me from God? Is, is that something that, that I put my confidence in these Four points speak to the spirit of God that has been given to us, that lives in us. I'm condemned no more. I'm chosen and adopted into God's family. I compare my present suffering with future glory and I confront trials with confidence. My hope is that we would look to the power that has been given to us versus all of the distractions out there. What would it look like for us to respond to that this morning. Let's pray. I'm grateful, Jesus, for this amazing truth, this incredible chapter that fills us with hope and confidence and also fills us with assurance of what is to come. Thank you for your spirit that lives in us, that is present in this room. I thank you for all the circumstances represented in this room, Lord. And Jesus, I pray that we would respond by uh, recognizing how awesome, wonderful, incredible you are, Christ in me. As I said earlier, if there's anyone in the house that has yet to say yes to Jesus, man, 
no better message to respond to than this one, filled with hope, filled with strength. All God is looking for is a posture of our heart, surrender, and a willingness to do what Romans 10 says, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our heart that he has raised him from the dead. So you can just say something like, Jesus, today I surrender to you my life and believe you died the death that I deserved. And I also believe now that you've given me your Holy Spirit that empowers me to live this side of heaven, the life that you designed for me. In Jesus' name.